Good morning. Thank you so much for being uh, at Murray Hills this morning. If you came today and you know what the sermon is about, uh, thank you for showing up. I appreciate that. If you have no idea what I'm going to talk about today, um, it's too late to leave. You got, it'd be awkward if you walked out of the room at this point. So we've, we've, we're in a series called The Afterlife, and we've been talking about what happens when you die. And we've spent the last three weeks talking about heaven. So, uh, yeah, you guessed it. It's time to talk about the other place. And you're going to learn more about hell in the next 30 minutes than you probably want to know. So uh, let's get going. I want to start, I want to start here, strangely enough, with uh, a quote from a modern-day theologian and philosopher, uh, Kenny Chesney, who said this, everybody want to go to heaven, but nobody want to go now. Now, that's the signature line from his 2008 song, uh, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven. It was written by the same songwriter who wrote, She Thinks My Tractor's Sexy. Uh, <laughs> she probably doesn't, but he's right on this one. Like, he's right about heaven. Uh, everybody believes that heaven is great and incredible and awesome and amazing, and everybody wants to go to heaven when they die. But nobody wants to go right now. So given the choice between you can go to heaven right now or you can have a little bit more time on earth, we will all choose a little bit more time on earth. Like we, and there's a good reason for that. Like we all want more time here. We want more time with family. We want more time to see kids grow up. We want more time to see grandkids grow up. Uh, we want to see more sunsets. We want more time to go fishing. We want more time to eat good food. I mean, we want more time on this earth. And I think God gave us that desire. God gave us the desire to live. He created this earth for our pleasure and enjoyment. He created relationships in our lives for our pleasure and enjoyment so it's a good thing that we want more time on on this earth like that's that's something that God planted in our hearts is the desire to live but I also think there's two other reasons that this is true that we don't want to go right now and both of them are tied directly to what we've been talking about in this series the first one is we're not a hundred percent sure of exactly what happens when we die uh, even though I've been talking about it for three weeks, and I can still stand up here and go, I'm still, I, like, I can't tell you exactly what happens and how it happens. And uh, Sunday, or Monday, I was planning out uh, worship with Scott, and we, we usually meet on Monday mornings or Monday afternoons. And uh, he said, you know what my favorite part of last week's sermon was? And that last week's sermon was, what is heaven like? He said, you know what my favorite part of last week's sermon was? It was at the very end when you said, I could be wrong, because you probably are. Uh, you know, like, like, no offense, brother, I, I, I loved your description of heaven, and I love the description of the new heavens and the new earth, and I love thinking about that and resurrection and all that, but, I mean, like, none of us really know. Like, we have to use our imaginations. Look, we know heaven exists, we know that it's going to be awesome and incredible, but we don't really know, and especially when you think about what happens immediately after death, like the, the, the intermediate heaven or paradise or whatever, there's so many unknowns. And so that's one of the reasons that we don't want to go now is there's just too many unknowns. But the other reason has to do with what we're talking about today. What if we don't make it there? Like, what if we end up at the other place? What do we do? The reason that, that we don't want to go now is basically we don't want to die because what? I mean, if we think there's two realities, the final reality, there's two options. There's heaven and hell. And Jesus said more people are going to end up in the other place than that place. I mean, isn't that what he said? It's about narrow is the road that leads to life and wide is the path that leads to destruction. So if, if there's a hell, 
we might end up there. So what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that people we know might end up in hell? How could we possibly enjoy heaven knowing that hell exists? How could we possibly celebrate heaven knowing that, that hell exists? That's, that's the problem of hell. That's what I've titled this message this morning. It's the problem of hell. An actual theologian, Edward Fudge, does a better job of describing the problem. This is what he says. He says, both the Old and New Testaments picture a new heavens and a new earth. An eternal universe forever free of all sin without temptation where everything in creation praises and worship God. It's impossible to harmonize that picture with another picture that shows most humans who ever lived screaming and writhing day and night in a place of everlasting conscious torment as they suffer unspeakable pain. So how do we square those things? How do we square the, the traditional doctrine of hell, which is much like this picture, that I, that's the, the kind of the image that I grew up with, was hell is this e- eternal flames and people writhing and screaming in agony for all eternity. Like the youth pastors, when they'd preach on hell, they'd turn the heat up in the room and you know, like, you'd have the screaming, the soundtrack and all this, because it's like, it was this ultimate motivator. You don't, the fear of, can you imagine this for all eternity? They light a match and hold their finger over it. Can you imagine this feeling for all, I mean, it's how do you square that picture? How do you square the, the torment of hell with the glories of heaven? If heaven is a world of eternal joy and happiness, then how do we explain a parallel world of eternal suffering and sadness? If God is good and loving and compassionate, and compassionate then, then what about hell? Uh, Grady King said that hell is the crazy uncle of the church. No offense to uncles. It's the crazy uncle of the church. Like we keep him locked away in the back bedroom with justifiable embarrassment because nobody wants to talk about him. And think about it. How many, in the last 15, 20 years, how many sermons have you heard on hell? If you've been in Murray Hills the last 15, 20 years, I think the answer is zero. Like how many times, maybe we heard a lot of it growing up. We heard some hellfire and damnation sermons, but it's been a long time since we've heard sermons on hell because it's just, it's almost, it's too awful to think about. Um, the problem has led a lot of people to deny its existence. Like somebody told me when I was getting ready to preach on this, they said, well, you know, your greatest challenge is there's going to be a lot of people in the room that don't believe it exists. And there's going to be a lot of people online that don't believe it exists. And, and the reason is because it's just too awful to think about. Something like that couldn't possibly exist, and so we just don't want to think about it. But if we're serious students of the Bible, I just, that option is not available to us because Jesus talks about it, Paul talks about it, John talks about it, Peter talks about it, the writer of Hebrews talks about it. You know, in the Old and New Testament, hell is real. I mean, there, it, it, it definitely affirms the existence of hell. Uh, it's very clear throughout Scripture, Old and New. But what's not so clear is the exact nature of it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, just like heaven. Heaven is very clear in Scripture. It's very clear that heaven exists, and that is the eternal destination of those who die in Christ. What's not so clear is the exact nature of it. And hell is very clear. That's the eternal destination of those who die without Christ. But the exact nature of it is, is not real clear. So what is the biblical picture of, uh, of hell? And I did, I almost brought my books up here, but I just decided not to. But I got a stack of books at my house, like this, this tall, on hell. Um, and, and I read more books for this message than any other message in the series. 
And part of that was because I'd never really done a comprehensive study of it. I'd never, you know, outside of a few childhood sermons and some pop culture images of flames and pitchforks and devils, I'd never really thought much about hell or done much study of it. So I did a lot of reading on hell. It kind of perturbed my daughters when they came home from college, like, Dad, what, why are you reading so many books on hell? Um, and so what, what I want to do in, in the next 15 minutes is I want to introduce you to three different views within Christianity of the nature of hell. And that, that statement alone may shock you just a little bit. Like, what do you mean three different views of hell? There's only one view of hell. You got a picture of it up there on the screen. There's actually three, there's actually four views of, of hell within Christianity, but I'm not going to go over the fourth one because it, it has to do with more Catholicism and uh, most of us aren't Catholic. So I'm, I'm going to skip purgatory and I'm just going to deal with the three main views of hell, and, and what I want you to do, and these are, these are quick overviews here, okay, um, what I want you to do is just be thinking as we kind of run through this, you know, like, which one best captures um, what the scriptures have to say about this, and there's no way we can cover all the scriptures, so uh, just know that on the front end here. So, the first, let's talk about these three views, the first one that we want to talk about is uh, the one that you know best, it's the one I was describing at the beginning of the sermon, that hell as eternal conscious torment. Uh, this is the traditional teaching of the church, um, and it holds that hell represents final separation from God, just retribution for sin, and an unending conscious experience. And some of the main views used for this are things Jesus said. Matthew 25, verses 41, when Jesus shares the parable of the sheep and the goats, he says, then he will say to those who are on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And he, you know, he speaks there of separation and of eternal fire. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 47, uh, Jesus said, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to, and that's hyperbole, but it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. And that's from some metaphors that Isaiah uses in, in chapter 66 of uh, his book. Second uh, Thessalonians 1, 9 and 1, 8. Uh, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And again, you have the mention of everlasting you know, separation but also everlasting destruction, and that that phrase will—that's important because it, that's a little bit a little bit different distinction there in Second Thessalonians, and then Revelation twenty, um, it talks about the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And if you keep reading that chapter, there's some more verses in there. That's where we get a lot of our traditional imagery of hell is from that Revelation chapter uh, twenty. Uh, this is actually one of the only, if, the, if not the only, place where it speaks of hell as eternal torment. And uh, it's reserved specifically for the devil. And um, that, that could be important. We'll come back and look at that in just a minute. But if you look at those verses, you see how phrases like eternal fire or eternal separation could certainly be understood as eternal conscious torment. And like I said, that's the, the traditional teaching of the church. The second view of hell is probably one that you haven't heard a lot about unless you read a lot of theology books. Uh, but within the last, I would say, 
it's been around for as long, all of these views have been around for as long as Christianity has been around, but this one within the last several decades has uh, gotten a lot more attention within Christian academia, if you will. And it's known as terminal punishment or conditional mortality. Um, you may have heard of it called uh, annihilationism as well. Okay, and I'll, I'll explain what all those terms mean. But they've got some problems with that first view. They've got some problems with eternal conscious torment. And um, they say, well, eternal conscious torment contradicts the goodness, love, and compassion of God, and it makes him out to be a tyrant. How could a loving God punish people forever in, in hell? Um, that eternal conscious torment contradicts the justice of God because it's in no way proportionate to the sin in question. So how could there be infinite punishment for finite sin. No matter how bad the finite sin is, how could, how could God provide infinite punishment for, for that sin? And then the third one was that uh, eternal conscious torment that's purely punitive and not remedial doesn't have any apparent value. So the terminal punishment view would say that evil is eventually destroyed. That yes, hell exists, and yes, it's awful, and yes, it's terrible, but it, it's not eternal in the sense that it's a conscious experience, a conscious experience of suffering or torment, that, that eventually evil is consumed or destroyed. The fire of hell is a consuming fire that leads to the eventual destruction of the loss. In other words, they cease to exist, that you, you die and you cease to exist. The, the fire is a consuming fire, not a, not a fire that just goes on forever. Um, and they actually go to Revelation 20 as well and talk about the second death, that there's a, there's a first death and there's a second death after the resurrection. Um, but they lean on the following verses. So let's look at a few of those real quick. Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 13. Again, they both, both sides appeal to things that Jesus said. But Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. And they put a lot of emphasis on the words destruction or destroyed. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus again, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And they would contrast this with, you know, the, the Christian reality of uh, the bodily resurrection. Our souls and bodies are resurrected to live forever in a new heaven and new earth. And they would say the opposite of that is hell. That the, the soul and the body are destroyed in hell. Uh, interestingly enough, John 3.16 is one. Like, has anybody ever thought of John 3.16 as being a, a verse about hell? No. We think of that as a verse about eternal life. But it, it is a verse about eternal life. But there, it's contrasting. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. So the, the fate of the wicked is perish. And the, those that are, that are in Christ live eternally. Uh, Romans 6.23, again, not one we really think about hell, but this is one they use, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So there's this comparison contrast in that, that those who, the, if you die in your sins, you die. And if you die in Christ, you live again. And then the last one I'll mention there is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. Uh, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And so in this view, the wicked are eventually destroyed. And if you go back to, like, we looked at uh, 2 Peter last week, 
if you look at verses like that where it talks about the, the present earth and the present heavens being consumed, uh, annihilationists would say that is a consuming fire, that it's like the, the wheat being separated from the chaff, that wickedness and, and evil is destroyed, but righteousness prevails. Just like the flood destroyed wickedness and evil and righteousness prevailed, that the fire would destroy wickedness and evil and, and righteousness would prevail. Uh, prevail. So they would understand, you know, when Jesus says about e- eternal fire, eternal separation, that the word eternal has to do more with permanent and final than it does with continued existence. All right. The third view, and I know I'm going through these quick because I don't have a whole lot of time, but the third view is one called uh, universalism. Now, you probably have heard of this one because um, several years ago there was a little book by uh, Rob Bell called Love Wins that got a whole lot of attention and uh, created a whole lot of controversy and basically got Rob Bell kicked out of Christianity, um, maybe it went along with some other things, but I mean it was, it was a huge, huge controversy. And uh, this is the idea that eventually all people will come to faith in Christ and all people will be saved to spend eternity with God. So this, this is the view that, uh, not that, that, you know, in annihilation, people will eventually cease to exist. Those who die without Christ would cease to exist at some point. You would die. You would be annihilated, destroyed, or consumed. In the universalist view, uh, hell itself would cease to exist because it's no longer necessary because eventually... All will come to faith in Christ, and, and all will, will go to heaven. They lean on uh, some of these verses. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Consequently, see, consequently, oh, can't speak. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. And so they emphasize the phrase, all people. First um, Corinthians 15, 2. For as in Adam all die, so is in Christ all will be made alive. In both of those verses, they're saying if there's universal condemnation for the sin of Adam, there's also universal salvation for the the rescue or the salvation of Christ. Uh, Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, you're familiar with that one. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. And that was pretty self-explanatory. I don't know how they define it, but they say at some point, every knee will bow to Jesus. And then the last one's at Colossians 1.19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so that somehow, this is the universal position is somehow God is going to reconcile all things to him through Christ and eventually all people will be saved. So, just pick one. We're done. Uh, no, 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 I'm not going to do that to you. <laughs> but, the, but the question is, if you had to pick one, I mean, when you look at those, and that's a quick, quick overview, but if you had to pick one, where do, where do you land? Which, which one of them makes the most sense? Which one of them makes the most sense biblically? Which one of them makes the most sense within the character and nature of God? You know, if, if I was to ask you, you know, okay, we're going to have a show of hands now. All the universalists, raise your hands. Don't do that. Uh, all the annihilationists, raise your hands. All the eternal court, conscious torment people, raise your hands. I, I would never do that to you. You know why? Because where we fall on this doctrine is probably one of the most dangerous positions to take within Christianity. And I don't know why. I don't, I, <laughs> but I, like, 
I debated long and hard. I, I even talked to the elders about this Wednesday night because we met Wednesday night, and I said, hey, I'm preaching on hell, and I'm going to share these three views of hell, and I'm going to share some of the relevant scriptures. But should I tell them where I land? Because pastors have been fired for far less <laughs> than talking about where they land on hell. And, you know, I mean, it's, uh, that could be a very controversial thing. So should I even mention it, or should I just say these are kind of some of the views out there, this is kind of some of what Scripture teaches, and just, and just go on. And um, our elders were like, no, tell them. Yeah, go. Go for it. And I don't know if they were, I don't know what they were rooting for there. But um, they, they actually said in all kind of, they were like, Murray Hills has always been a safe place to talk about these things. Like, people are, are going to talk in small groups, and they're going to have different views. This has always been a safe place to do that in Murray Hills. So it, it, we're 100% comfortable with you talking about um, your teaching because it's just your teaching. You're just one guy. <laughs> it's just, you're just one opinion. Yeah, you, I mean, you have to be a preacher and a teacher, but you're just one opinion. And, uh, and I appreciate that perspective, and that's always been our perspective uh, at Murray Hills. And so... I'll, I'll tell you where I lean. I don't know that I'm going to tell you where I land because I'm not sure where I land. But I'll tell you where I lean of those, of those three views. And I'll, I'll back into them. Whoops. Did I have that up there? No, that's okay. I'll back into them just a little bit. Um, let's deal with universalism first. I'm not a universalist. Okay? Um, but I do find it very interesting as to how much universalism bothers us as Christians. So, uh, I, like, I, I don't know that I can align with that one, and I'll tell you why I can't align with that one. But I do think it's interesting that we get so angry when people say, you know, I think in the end all will be saved. And that just, that, I mean, man, you discover quickly how much Christians love their hell when you start hearing people talk about, you know, at the end everybody's going to be saved. Because that really upsets us. It's kind of an older brother mentality just a little bit. It's like, wait a minute, I've been... I've been doing all this work, and I've been going to church all these years, and I've been trying not to cuss and drink too much and be nice to people and love people, and you're telling me everybody's going to get in, even those people that didn't do all that. I mean, it's kind of, there's, there's a little bit of like this fairness thing that kind of pops up in us, like, wait a minute, this is not fair. I've been following God, and I deserve to be rewarded for this, and you're going to tell me at the end everybody gets saved. And so it's, it's weird to me that we are so, we react so strongly to universalism. I think there's a reason. But I think it's weird that we react so strongly to it because it's like, shouldn't that be what we want? I mean, that, that should be that. Like, we should want. Like, if you hear, like, you know, if you get to heaven and God says, hey, good news, everybody's going to be saved. In the end, everybody's going to be in heaven. We should be like, the reaction shouldn't be, well, that ain't fair. It would be like, well, hallelujah, that's great. Nobody's going to go to hell. Everybody's going to go to heaven. That's fantastic. I mean, that, that should be what we desire. That's what God desires. I mean, if I understand that passage and, you know, why is the Lord so delayed in coming? It's because he wants everybody to come to repentance. He's, he's patient. He's waiting on everybody to come to repentance. So it should be what we desire. Um, so it's like, well, then why aren't you a universalist? Well, it's because my wishes don't necessarily determine my views. I mean, just because I wish something or hope something to be true <laughs> doesn't necessarily determine my views. The reason I'm not is because I think the bulk of Scripture teaches the opposite. Like, I think the bulk of what Jesus said, it's interesting that universalists don't ever quote Jesus because pretty much most of what Jesus said talked about, you know, there's, there's two realities. You know, you're, you're with me or without me, and there's re eternal life or destruction. Um, and so I don't, you know, I think the bulk of what Jesus said and Paul said and others in Scripture don't support the universalist position. And even when you read the universal position, they'll say they readily admit that they don't have as much scriptural support as the other two positions. 
So that, that one bothers me a little bit. Free will bothers me too. Um, C.S. Lewis said this, that I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully that all will be saved. And I like his confession on the front end. Like, I, I wish it was that way. But my reason retorts with their will or without it. If I say without their will, I at once perceive a contradiction. How can the supreme voluntary act of self-surrender be involuntary? If I say with their will, then my reason replies, well, how if they will not give in? And so he's addressing this idea that God allows us to freely choose whether or not we will follow him. And he always has since Adam and Eve. He's, always, he's never forced people to follow him. He's always given us the option of whether we would freely follow him. And so if, if we have free will and we can freely choose to follow God or to reject God, freely choose to surrender our lives to Christ or to reject Christ, then uh, I don't know how universalists overcome that. So that, one, that one's tough for me to, to understand. Um, which leaves two other options. And of the remaining two options, um, I lean to terminal punishment. I'm kind of right in the middle right there. Uh, I realize in saying that, that that's not the, the traditional teaching or the traditional doctrine. Uh, but I lean that, that, that hell is not a place of eternal torment, but it is a place of eternal destruction. It is a place of eternal separation. Um, that those who die in Jesus will be destroyed and forever separated from God, while those who uh, live in Jesus will live again and be resurrected to a new heavens and a new earth. That's a, that's a conditional Im uh, immortality. The idea that God is the only being that is immortal and the only being that can grant immortal life to us. We are mortal. Humans die. And the only person that can make us immortal is God. And he will do that with those who die in Christ. And those who die without Christ will be forever separated from, from God. Um, that does not diminish hell like that doesn't somehow make hell a better place like oh well good then I'm I'd like to go to hell now no what I mean that doesn't at all diminish the the horribleness and the terribleness of hell to be forever separated from God or just to cease to exist to be consumed and to cease to exist um, is a terrible terrible reality so hell in in my view hell is a terrible punishment but I have a hard time making the leap to, to God being um the eternal tormentor. And so the reason I kind of align with this view is I think it aligns with the bulk of Scripture, although I readily admit there's some Scriptures that I, I, I trip over in this view. So, But it, it aligns with the bulk of Scripture. It aligns best with the character and nature of God as God being all-loving and, and, um, and all-compassionate and all-just. Uh, and I think it, it helps me better understand. I, I, I introduced the problem several weeks ago, like, you know, so we die and there's an intermediate death and then eventually we end up in the reality of heaven. But how do we enjoy a world of eternal joy and eternal happiness? How do we enjoy a world where there is no mourning and no suffering, knowing that there is a parallel world that exists of eternal suffering and eternal mourning? And um, that, that view kind of answers that question. Now, I'll give you a couple of caveats. And I will, if, if any of you are interested in this, because some of you are like, when are you going to stop talking about hell so we can move on and talk about something more pleasant? But if you're interested in studying more about hell, I'm happy to share my reading list with you, and, and you can do, do the studies. Uh, one of the best books I read is called Four Views of Hell, and it's just 
one scholar presents his view, and the other three guys disagree with him. And then the next scholar presents his view, and the other three guys disagree with him. And that, I, I like that one because it's not trying to like say, this is what you got to believe. It's saying, here's what the scriptures say. Here's how people have interpreted that over the years. Um, I, I'll end with this. I could be wrong. <laughs> I could, I'm just one man's opinion. I could be wrong. And guess what? It's okay to be wrong. Because that's not the basis of um, my fellowship, my acceptance in fellowship, and that's not the basis of my salvation. I don't believe that anybody's views on any aspect of eschatology should ever be a test of salvation or a test of fellowship, including universalist. I, I, I just... It, eschatology is so there's so many unknowns we're trying to answer so many unknowns so if somebody tells me i believe that jesus is the christ the son of the living god but here's what i think about heaven or here's what i think about hell and i disagree with what they think about heaven or i disagree with what they think about hell they're still my brother and sister in christ if they believe that christ is the that jesus is the christ the son of the living god then then we're still brothers and sisters in some capacity uh just like any family we may fight and disagree a little bit but we're still family all right, and that, and that's where that's why I think our elders felt comfortable with me sharing where I was on it because they said, you know, that's not that's not the basis of our fellowship. We can be wrong on that as long as we're right on Christ. Let's worry about being right on Christ. So if if we're right on Christ, we can be wrong about everything else, and we're still okay <laughs> as long as we're right on Christ. Uh, the other thing that I'll close with is um, if if we're in Christ, then. Everything I've spent the last 30 minutes talking about doesn't matter <laughs> because we ain't going there anyway. So that, that's the thing you need to like. Jesus promises us that there's nothing that can separate us from him, that his love of Christ covers us. And so if it, we can have assurance in our salvation, we can have assurance approaching the throne of grace with confidence because we know that Jesus' sacrifice was enough. So I, I can spend all I want, I can read, 10,000 books on hell, and I can come up with all kind of different theories and all that kind of stuff, but at the end of the day, I ain't going there, and neither are you. If we're in Christ, then we're going to spend a life of eternity with God in a new heavens and a new earth, and that's what we look forward to. Let me say a word of prayer for us. I'll tell you where we're going next week, and uh, we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Um, I thank you for safe places. Thank you for places where we can come and, and talk about things and think about things and, and come to different conclusions. And, and uh, I'm thankful for, you know, brothers and sisters where iron sharpens iron. And um, we're able to talk about these things. We know that we always go back to your word as the final authority. It's not our wishes and hopes that, that matter. It's, it's what your word says. Uh, and that's what we go back to. And that's what we study. And that's what we lean on. Um, Father, I, I pray for, uh, I pray that we would be reminded always of the assurance of what you've done for us through Jesus, and uh, the fact that it is enough. And it's not that it's it's not that we'll ever do enough to to repay that debt, um, but that you have paid the debt through Jesus. And because of that, we have the hope of eternal life. And that is what we we cling to. And it's in the name of your Son Jesus. I pray these things. Amen. If you are encouraged by today's talk, feel free to share it with your friends. Please also consider rating and subscribing on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please visit us online at murrayhills.com.